I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards some greater purpose? We are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 66. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from Detroit, Michigan, uh, a, a writer and cinephile and friend of the pod, it's uh, Sean Glynnis. Uh, geez, I didn't okay you to call me a cinephile. But I <laughs> <laughs> Local film freak. Uh... <laughs> hey guys, how's it going? Uh, I am doing terrific, and uh, as as the Lakers wrap up this easy victory on the road to a championship, I am just settling into what a, a comfortable evening in L.A. as the the air quality lowers <laughs> and the skies disappear. <laughs> yeah, this is the last good thing that's going to happen for Los Angeles. So you going out with it. a W, <laughs> getting a ring, and you won't even be able to see it. Uh, we're we're thrilled to have you on, Sean. This week's episode is the the second installment in our Brooks Brothers miniseries, so you know what that means. Our double feature is Broadcast News by James L. Brooks from 1987 and Real Life by Albert Brooks from 1979. Now, usually... I would ask our guest why they picked these movies, uh, why of, of all the films in history, uh, to, to come to the podcast with. But Sean kind of had a, uh, a multiple choice answer here. But w- what do these films mean to you, Sean? <laughs> what do these filmmakers mean to you? Uh, real life, I actually didn't watch until like last month. And um, I've watched a couple times since then. But about Albert Brooks... As a filmmaker and um, actor, I guess more generally, um, has meant a lot to me. Like my, I grew up like with my dad watching Defending Your Life all the time. I have no idea why, but just like <laughs> it's not—it's not really like within his like taste. But for some reason, he was very attracted to that movie. So I, I was—I definitely knew who he was. Um, and over the past like uh, few years, I guess I've gotten into the early stuff, this like early triptych of his um, that's going to be covered, I think on, on these episodes. And yeah, uh, they've, they've become like staples for me each year. But as, as far as James L. Brooks, um, broadcast news is like a, a movie that, that I've regarded as a favorite of mine for a while now. Um it's something that has really, like, I, I remember in high school, like, first watching it, like, me and my friend would trade tapes, like, rent each other tapes and, and uh, give each other these tapes to watch each, each week. And one day he gave me that. And I didn't really think much of it then. I was just like, what is this? Like, you know, I, I wanted to see, like, 12 monkeys or something. <laughs> something weird and, and twisted. And I was just like, I don't I don't want to watch this, like, news movie. But um, uh, in since then in adulthood, it, it's really become... Uh, an important part of, I guess, naturalism, like uh, that type of, it's a, it's a melodrama and that's what James L. Brooks does. But um, I, I think it's just like sort of an exemplary, a great example of what naturalism is, which isn't really something that I am, I gravitate towards. And I'm guessing you guys are on the same wavelength where it's just like, you know, the apex of acting and filmmaking isn't isn't naturalism, but um, I think broadcast news kind of like stands on its own. 
Yeah, I think Brooks has proven himself as like using naturalism within like the mainstream Hollywood kind of comedic melodrama mold that he uh, made for himself, uh, like very like uniquely and successfully. There's not no mm-hmm. real other filmmaker that I could think of that kind of works in that same uh, tonal arena that he does, you know. And so, so for those who don't know about broadcast news at all, uh, it, it's about you know the the goings on of a news network in a transitional period, you know, showcasing this uh, kind of false binary between cold hard facts and like entertainment tonight. Uh, and you kind of have a love triangle at the center. Uh, it's really uh, more than anything a study of these three characters: Tom Grunick, played by William Hurt, a uh, former sportscaster, now looking to make his way into anchoring by failing upward and being very handsome. And you know the the more skilled but nervous and neurotic uh, reporter, played by Albert Brooks, Aaron Altman. And then kind of the the center of the film, what holds it all together, and w- one of the great performances in the James L. Brooks filmography comes from Holly Hunter playing Jane Craig, the kind of overachieving, uh, hyper-stimulated, or I don't even know if that's the right word, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but uh, very into everything she does, a character (laughs) who also has uh, routine nervous breakdowns and crying fits whenever she can fit them in, you know, to her very busy schedule. (laughs) No, yeah, and what you said about naturalism, too, I think... Brooks kind of operates in this special space because when you think of naturalism or realism, you kind of think of maybe kind of like stark truths or kind of like exposing, you know, maybe a a side of reality that's not as chipper. But I feel like the way Brooks deals with these issues, he leaves it very open-ended and open to interpretation and kind of uh, sees it as kind of just like the ways of life, the natural waves of life and happening. And also you were talking about exchanging videotapes. I remember me and my friends, we used to exchange some videotapes too. You know, yeah. it was uh, big curvy butts <laughs> four, and he'd give me juicy tits three. That was always that's a fun cinephilic tradition. You guys would you guys would get together and like talk about what you thought about each. <laughs> the perfect curvature of a woman, you know. People used to get together and talk about culture, intellectual flirtation, as it, as it were. I, I think what excites me about James Brooks is. Um, use of naturalism is that uh he's playing in these these like formulas that we're very familiar with but but yet they're so it's so exciting to find out what these people are going to say like it's very unpredictable how these characters are going to interact with each other which um is kind of rare i guess uh jt you've seen this one before right yeah no i love the brooks boys and uh this one it's like i I'm just so damn confused by this double feature. We get we're mixing up our Brookses here. You got the Al Brooks and the Jimmy Brooks. You got the Jimmy Brooks and the Al Brooks. I who fucking made any of these movies? What's going on? I don't fucking know. Uh, and they're both about uh, creating media too, and the ethics yeah. and gaming journalism. <laughs> It's almost like they're all in on, in on it together making yeah. these movies. No, uh, I I think like you know uh, the the horror uh, slash comedy slash tragedy of what's going on in the news is like something that I don't know it it 
almost makes me want to have a cynical look at these films, but then it's just like the power of the filmmaking overwhelms me mm-hmm. so much uh, to where it's like, yeah, I don't care that a bunch of like journalists that I probably think are like among the most insufferable people in the world, <laughs> uh, you know, see themselves in any of these characters or like see it as like a, an important film about what they do or whatever. Well, I mean, I think I think it, that it'd be kind of missing the point, especially if broadcast news to yeah. think that way, because I think the conclusion holly hunter comes to is that maybe like she's her thinking has been a little bit too askew or hasn't been nuanced enough to really capture the the full situation of what's going on Mm -hmm. and uh what you were saying sean about it being like naturalistic but still unpredictable i feel like you know uh, we talked last week about how brooks takes you know four years to write his screenplays apparently Mm -hmm. and uh they're still so set in these very screenwritery molds though you know uh like they have these dual character introductions each character gets an introduction as a kid and then you get the title card and then you get another introduction as an adult just so you can get as many you know character traits uh, in your notepad as you can in the opening 15 minutes but it also just feels like he's just making the most perfect choices <laughs> designing these characters as how should uh, how they should fit naturally and uh, how you know uh, they would fit with each of these actors' presences on screen. I think the the formal thing going on here is is very savvy too, where you kind of have the the ethics ethics and journalism. We've heard about this, right? <laughs> um, you have like ethics and journalism, right? And uh, William Hurt, the Tom character both represents you know what she's not supposed to like both you know romantically and in like in his reporting you know in a professional and um you know personal sense and yeah i think the thing about like brooks you know kind of starting off with those like uh, almost like one note you know you you get like a one note version of this character and then it just develops further and further within the movie where it feels like the characterization is more integrated Mm -hmm. into the plot than you know most movies could ever reach and I love how he's still working with his like set of types of characters, you know, mm-hmm. like all of these characters feel so distinguished, but then you see the behavior kind of echo from one film to the next. Like you have the scene uh, first when the story about uh, Gaddafi breaks at the party that they're at. And by the way, I love that Albert Brooks says something <laughs> along the lines of like, Gaddafi's not foaming at the mouth when you talk to him or something like that. <laughs> but I love before he decides to get in on the fun and call into his work uh, while he's not on the clock, he's just like getting drunk and singing along to that Best, goofy yeah. French record, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is very much like Paul Rudd in that scene in How Do You Know, where he's doing the same thing, you know. And it's like these characters are very different, but they're all clearly in the same, you know, set of archetypes that he works with that. I think I mentioned the Jonathan Rosenbaum essay that kind of goes through all of Brooks's films that he kind of characterizes those archetypes. And I think that. I don't know, Brooks just knows how to put so much detail into like differentiating these characters and these milieus while still working within the same kind of, I guess, superstructure. Is that the essay where he refers to, where he's talking about sort of the single trait portraitures and then he refers to it as like dialectical collisions? Uh, Yes, Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's such like, it's not even, it's not the point he's arriving at, but it, it it strikes me as like, 
the perfect encapsulation of so much of Brooks's uh, filmography for me, and especially in this, where yeah, you have like these three people that um, are all in the same business and sometimes that have the same goal, uh, but have just such different perspectives and are colliding. And, um, and especially when he calls in, that scene is just like uh, you know he's he's calling into her and she's funneling it to her, to him uh will her on the other end and it's just like this this great um uh i don't know what to call it but you you just see all of their perspectives in place working together um and i i think that holly hunters is probably the most important as far as in like we get to see her internal dialectical collisions like when she's asked like if it's okay if What's her name? Asks Tom out, and she has like the realization that <laughs> I see Tom around you a lot, and it's such a small office, and I'd like to see him outside of work, unless there's some reason for you to mind, in which case I just won't do anything. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Do I mind? Why would I mind? No. What? I do mind. Uh, maybe why do why do I mind or like mm -hmm. when she sees the 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 to jump ahead the the date rape scene for the first time and and she's like questioning like she's reforming her own decisions about ethics and this stuff that she has like poured over forever and all of a sudden because this like disarming sexy man that she wants like makes this decision in this savvy way she's all of a sudden like reforming everything she thinks about. And each of those scenes, too, are, like, juxtaposed, just to add another layer of it, with what Albert Brooks's uh, situation is in that moment, comparatively, you know, uh, mm -hmm. at that scene at the party where she's weighing whether or not she should let her co-worker ask out William Hurt's character. Uh, you know, in between those two scenes, you have a scene of Albert Brooks kind of just watching her walk toward uh, the kitchen, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a over-the-shoulder shot of Brooks watching her watch the rest of the party. Uh, and to to get back to the Rosenbaum that you, thing that you said, and it really does make it like a, a dialectics thing, I guess, is because huh, he talks about how Dave Kerr uh, was negative on terms of endearment and talked about how the sitcom style was like very evident in how he was doing these dramatic kind of 10 minute chunks. Uh, and mm -hmm. Rosenbaum says that like the positive side is the way that he orchestrates and juxtaposes his 10-minute chunks, single-trait portraiture, and stylistic overkill, yielding arresting dialectical collisions that produce something richer than can be found in his sitcoms. And I think that this does make a good point, because it's like just the method of production. You, you don't have one guy writing a season of a sitcom. You know, uh, you don't have one guy even writing three hours worth of a sitcom. So when you have someone that's so attuned to that style of storytelling, making it into a slightly longer than two hour movie where he's writing every single line of dialogue, uh, you're going to get some, if it's a master like James L. Brooks, you get something like this. And if you don't, you probably get something like a lot of studio comedies of this era and later. I mean, I think working within that, like the structure and archetypes, I think adds a level of familiarity to the work that like each time, like, I mean, I've seen uh, all but one of the James L. Brooks movies now, but they like, they feel so warm and familiar with that, but also like contrasted with what we we're talking about, the specificity of character, like keeps every, 
one of those like standard screenwritery beats like exciting and mm-hmm. fresh and fun even if you're watching it again yeah i mean because like there's a lot of moments right where like scenes are kind of punctuated with like a, a killer line so to yeah. speak and that's that's a technique that i could find annoying in a lot of other screenwriters a lot mm-hmm. of other filmmakers but in the way like brooks does it uh it's it's definitely not like overkill but it, it's uh it speaks to like a, a character's very kind of specific pain and like inner conflict about what's going on and it's uh it's never cheap it never feels cheap he never yeah. he never has a uh, i don't know brooks would never uh waste time i guess so to speak yeah <laughs> talking about this in terms of his tv work and or just um, these two mediums juxtaposed. I, I think the unsung hero in broadcast news is Michael Ballhouse. Ballhouse. Oh goodness. Um, because, like, especially watching Terms of Endearment recently, um, like, it's great. It's it's great. But um, there is, like, jumping straight to this, there's definitely such a big, there's a significant jump in artistry. And um, I listened to the, uh, the Brooks uh, commentary, and he talks a lot about what Ballhouse did for this and and um different uh feedback he had and and, and just thoughts and um i just uh i immediately jumped to that scene at the party that you're describing where he's looking down one hall and then looking down the other and it's just like such a perfect uh physical um navigation and of course like brooks like talks about how that was like michael's idea um so i i i, I bet he has I, it, it seems like ballhouse had been very pivotal to Brooks's development as a smart visual filmmaker, as opposed to just like a really good screenwriter. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, uh, Bajos's work in this is incredible. The scene where they're relaying information, you know, Brooks at his house and then a uh, hunter in the booth and uh, her, you know, broadcasting, you have so many of the split diopter shots where it's like, just like the side of Hurt's face with his earpiece in extreme close up. And then in the deep background, you have Hunter just watching, you know, pensively and very excitedly as well. Uh, and so many shots like that are just like, so brilliantly deployed throughout this when people are just watching these CRT monitors at their workplace, uh, doing their job, you know, so attuned to all the, the key elements within the production design, like what, you know, uh, buttons and like tape playback stuff gets those nice insert close up shots. No, the cinematography here definitely has like a big attention to like the mechanics of production, which is kind of funny. Cause like the movie doesn't even really, it has like a lot of questions about like, you know, ethics of journalism, but not even what they're reporting itself which is, I think, is a good a good point because, you know, you, you get to focus on the characterization. But it does a good job with that, you know, like thinking about when they're rushing that tape to the delivery room to get it in on time and how you, you just see kind of every part of like this news office. But also kind of like towards the end where things get a little bit more solemn and serious. There's just a, just a simplicity to some of the frames. Kind of like one um, when William Hurt is getting told off at the airport and you have that bright red wall and he's wearing that backwards cap with the yeah <laughs> that little tie what it was like a tie-dye ascot or i don't i don't know clothing what yeah. is that called bandana but yeah this is a real simple and graceful shot and it is kind of the inverse of the first time he meet because that's their goodbye i guess other than the the epilogue mm-hmm. at the end but the first time he meets her is in that beautifully designed like 
uh, should shouldn't be this beautiful, but is uh, like place where Holly Hunter is giving that speech where she's totally bombing in the beginning. Like one and, yeah, and you, you have all those red chairs, you know, and the white wall background, and that great shot of him walking up uh, to Hunter after everyone is left, and you know uh, the great line like I don't think there's going to be a Q and A session. <laughs> <laughs> That's also hilarious. The Domino video because that Domino video does rule. Yeah, it's like, so. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> They're all like clapping. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's an A plus bit. It's just like her saying, like, they don't even show the news anymore. It's just this, and the whole auditorium just loses it. <laughs> oh, shit. Not, not to go scene by scene, but like the, the, the scene after that where they're in her hotel room is just like such, like, it's strange to think back and be like, oh, that's the first scene where they're like actually meeting and like getting familiar with each other because it's yeah. so in- intimate. And but it, it Brooks like sets you up with this ex- expectation that that the dialogue and the, and the chemistry are just going to have like this very impulsive nature to like it's obviously scripted and rehearsed for like weeks but um it seems to just like it aims to articulate what their impulses are even if they're not doing exactly what they want like you could kind of read it on their face and and just the way they bounce around this room just uh it's it's fun to watch and it's also the first like really long kind of melodrama scene in this because the the longer scenes in this are mainly of like a workplace process stuff you know like the set pieces of getting these big news pieces out there where uh you know some other james l brooks films the longer scenes are the longer drawn out melodrama scenes like spanglish has two or three scenes that are just like two person dialogue scenes that go on for nearly 10 minutes uh this film doesn't have that entirely but that early scene of them in her room uh holly hunter and william hurt that is is really just an incredible display of like, I guess the charisma between those two actors is they don't, you know, know anything about each other yet. Clearly they, uh, they don't know that they're going to be working together the next day. It could be seen as a little too much, like everything fitting into the right place and too cutesy kind of old Hollywood logic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't really care because like the, the chemistry between those two actors in that scene is brilliant. No, I mean, that scene also recalls uh, another scene, I feel, towards the end of the movie where after Aaron messes up his big, you know, weekend news update and she goes over to console him. And it's a great scene because you get to see kind of like the negative impulses and the kind of like generous impulses of every mm-hmm. single of all three of those characters within that scene. And it the the kind of the weird weaves that scene goes through where, you know, Tom, again, like kind of rejects her over the phone just because she's you know, over at Aaron's house too much and how Aaron kind of manipulates her into staying just to ruin the date. It's just a just ma- masterwork on display. I mean, I think to speak to Albert Brooks's performance, like he's doing like killer work there with Aaron because he is so clearly like could be the most annoying, like fucking cucked character of all time. <laughs> like the fact that he makes the, um, I mean, obviously a testament to the writing as well, but when he is doing that long tirade against Tom and is like calling him basically the devil yeah. in regards to like their profession and stuff like that. It's like I you, I don't know. It's just masterful that you can feel so much pity for that character um, while also realizing he's he's being very skeevy there. I, I, I think, well, that moment specifically is just like, um, 
for me, it seemed like the most uh, Albert Brooks and James L. Brooks moment, like into one capsule. Like you, you could just see that line being said in an Albert Brooks movie. But um, I, I think uh, he he's also like he's so spiteful. And um, there's those moments, like like when he's talking to Tom about the cabinet members, uh, and he's like, uh, I don't want to do this in. in I would only, you know, if it came up in conversations, like, well, we're, <laughs> we're conversing. And then he tricks him. And then Tom, uh, Tom has, like, uh, uh, James L. Brooks mentions how important it was to ha- to give Tom the last word to have, him, you know, as he's going out uh, saying something, you know, back to him about uh, there's 50, right? When he talks about the States. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's the same way when he's leaving the hotel room and, and he's like, he, he says something about how she was, she was so mean, but uh, you know, she was also right or whatever. And I, I think that, you know, it, it doesn't feel cathartic for James L. Brooks to be these mean, these like smart mean characters, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, what's great about the scene of, you know, Albert Brooks testing him with like the States and stuff. And then right when he goes in, you hear uh Holly Hunter be like, oh, hey, Tom, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, to wrap it up, kind of, so I, I, I won't exactly get into uh, all the, the machinations of how the love triangle wraps up. I'll leave that to the viewer. <laughs> well, it, it ends a certain way, and um, uh, apparently it tested so poorly with audiences, which I guess was a through line through Jane Gilbrook's career, that he shot an alternate ending that sounds awful. I, I, I know that, like, I have access to it, but I just, I, I don't see a reason to even watch it because it just sounds so bad. But, uh, so I'm glad he actually stuck to this. Uh, but he talks about, like, just being, you know, uh, he, he feels bad for letting down the audience, <laughs> which is an interesting <laughs> thing. But, um, yeah. He wants it, to please it, us. Yeah. <laughs> to wrap things up, you know, perhaps it's lacking in the catharsis of the melodrama of Terms of Endearment or Spanglish, but the everything in its place epilogue really works for me in a sense of both like uh, realism for uh, the story, like for the milieu that it takes place in. And like, you know, this story being in such a specific context, I feel like sets Brooks alongside someone like Altman in terms of their films being, you know, studies of milieus as much as the characters that inhabit them. Uh, And I think it really accomplishes uh, something that the other Brooks films don't quite get to this level. Uh, It might not be my favorite Brooks film overall, but it's the one that succeeds at that the most. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and give this one four and a half bullets. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. On rewatch, I, I do love this movie. Maybe my love went down 0.01% just because I was thinking about kind of like the melodramatic highs of Spanglish. And this does not quite have that. Like there's some there's some insane magic in Spanglish. And it's mm-hmm. but I think what you said about this, this movie does feel perfectly formed. You know what I mean? I, I think I was reading Dave Kerr's review of this, which he liked this one. He liked this one. And um, it has like a kind of like a almost perfectionist quality to it of like kind of classic Hollywood. And I think that's a, an apt comparison. And uh, yeah, it's, it's I one mean, of like my Hunter is definitely like a Hoxie and Dane. No. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, or even hurt. I mean the, the kind of like the cool remove of William hurt. Like mm-hmm. I love how he's, he's uh you know, he's quote unquote dumb, but he's not uh, dumb enough to realize he's not dumb. You know what I mean? And that, and that's, I think, and he's I think embarrassed by how dumb he is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is pretty relatable. <laughs> it's, it's relatable, right? It, yeah, you know, it's because, yeah, I was, you know, as a, 
you know, I feel like I'm a combination of Hurt and Brooks, you know, just the perfect man, possibly. Because, <laughs> like, I, I do have kind of, like, that spitefulness Brooks has, but I'm not, like, smart. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you look like William Hurt. Yeah, yeah, and I, I look worse than both of them. But, uh, <laughs> JT, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm tossing up uh, five bullets at this one. Um, staying there confidently upon rewatch. I had to like for the first time I encountered broadcast news, I was doing it um, for like a shitty like film school directing thing. I had to read the entire script and then do a little scene of it. And the scene I had to do was the Brooks talking to Hunter, like the con- confrontation we were talking about where he ca- he calls Tom the devil. And I yeah. shot it terribly. <laughs> uh, but that aside, like reading an early draft of the script I was like I don't know back then I was like really underwhelmed and there were a lot of changes made because I think it was like one of the first drafts of it but this time around I was like really taken aback by how much of Brooks is writing is like present in the DNA of the Simpsons I mean like it's fucking obvious to say but like I don't know it really took me aback this time because it's like how pivotal Brooks was to making uh, the early Simpsons like such a masterpiece, like especially this time around the neuroses of Holly Hunter and her like crying and like her sort of big energetic freakouts and sort of being that goody two shoes nerd is like so Lisa Simpson and just the way like that early Simpsons episodes are structured that like that and so grounded and down to earth. It's just um, fascinating to see how brooks's legacy evolves and changes over time uh what about you sean uh this is definitely a a, a five bullet for me um yeah I, early on eddie you, you talked about about how uh the characters in, in in this echo elsewhere in brooks's filmography and and uh it's interesting like the more i i i think about and, and see Brooks's movies, like how you can see like this through line from like Mary Tyler Moore to, to Deborah Winger to Holly Hunter. And then, uh, um, uh, Helen Hunt. And I don't know who would it be in Spanglish, like Adam Sandler. Uh, but, um, like just this, like sort of live wire, um, this characterization that I think is just like, so, uh, um, I don't know. So watchable for me in this and um i usually like for some for my favorite movies i usually don't try to watch them a lot like i I, you know once a year or whatever but i can't do like the you know seven times a year type of thing um (laughs) but but this one is one that that really doesn't get older like like that i can put on whenever and and uh, i still um really enjoy all of the different interactions yeah i watched this one for the first time just a few months ago and it did not like age i get like it didn't you know sometimes mm-hmm. when you watch a rewatch something in short succession it kind of loses mm-hmm. that first viewing charm but this was just as good if not better as the first viewing pretty recently i mean compared to this is something something like network by Sidney lumet which i haven't watched so i can't really comment this on. is way well, better no, yeah. than network. But, but of course right but it's like it's like also it's like think how not dated this is you yeah. know for a movie about the news it's kind of impressive that's kind of impressive true. Even Nightcrawler updated uh, like six months after it got released. Yeah, well, because it had the online element, and well, yeah. no, no <laughs> film about the internet can survive. They will all be dated by the time they go into post production. Yeah. Apparently, Jack 
Nicholson, uh, like they, he did like two days, I think, and he his like one demand was like have a bunch of suits there for me so that I can like choose when I get there, like just what make sure I, you know you have exactly what I want, and then he left with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> what a legend! Uh, we didn't even mention Jack, who uh, you know you only see him on TV monitors until an hour and forty minutes into the movie. You get one scene of him walking through the office full of people who are about to get fired <laughs> uh what a great presence he is in this it's it's uh it's a how do you know-esque uh jack oh, performance you know definitely de- i love the philip seymour hoffman looking uh guy yeah. the tape rewinder yeah he's great yeah that that whole process of like every time they're in that control room it's great but the first time you're kind of introduced to all the equipment uh it, it does also kind of feel like something that happened that would happen in the first act of a Simpsons episode, you know, like that whole, they, they do like a mini set piece like that just to get you to a plot point somehow, you know? Uh, anyway, we, we've gone far too long on this. Uh, we'll be right back to talk <laughs> about real life. That's a lie. We're going to do the middle segment, but don't tell them that. <laughs> Homecoming. Norman Rockwell's enduring portrait. The return of a fighting man has always been one of the more moving ceremonies of war. We have a minute and a half. It's my responsibility to tell the control room and New York that we won't be ready. Uh Uh-uh, we'll be ready. In 84 seconds? 15 seconds? Oh, God! You're saying, oh, God! Lay it in, Bobby, back out. They're gonna go up and the screen will be black, and they're gonna go to black because we're not there. What about careers, huh? We're not gonna make it! Whoops! Whoops! there was an ethics in journalism uh, and mm-hmm. that's it. But I guess we're done. We went 30 minutes already. So yeah. Fuck it. We can't tackle it all. Plus I feel like, you know, you know, my thoughts on the matter. I feel like the conclusion is like, you we should execute all American journalists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's and, weird too, because like Eddie, you were talking about like uh, how we view journalists now, but like uh, Albert Brooks was talking about how at the time he would watch, like CNN was on all the time. Like everybody watched the news all the time. And, this was like a time when layoffs were like a scandal, like an American scandal to have like these big layoffs. It's so different from now where they're just like hucksters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, we grew up in a time where we never even trusted them. So I can't even pretend yeah, to care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back on extended clip. I told my dad, I read Al Jazeera and he's like, what? <laughs> hey, those are journalists too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're back on everyone's favorite segment journalism weekly uh malcolm did you watch anything noteworthy uh, since our last record 10 long days ago yes i did but actually i crafted a little bit a little bit for um because i saw richard brody he wrote an Do article a sub sub segment <laughs> yeah malcolm's bit corner um <laughs> bitcoiner um but uh Richard Brody, I saw, wrote an article today defending that movie on Netflix that got a lot of fire from like um, Q, QAnon people called Cuties because there was a lot of like depictions of, I don't know. I don't know what the, what they're mad about. But kids it's, twerkers. Yeah, kid twerking, kids twerking. I guess I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that stuff. But um, 
Um, it's 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 just interesting that like Richard Brody is a Richard Brody's a character in the Q universe now, right? Like they're gonna they're gonna be going through his reviews and his work and being like trying to find the decoded messages. Like they're gonna they're gonna watch in praise of love and like pause for Nambla logos just to see if it's there. So I I hope much like Armand White going to the National Review, I hope this is a great resurgence in conspiratorial uh, conservatives watching great art. But, um, <laughs> so I guess for your middle segment this week, your movie is Richard Brody QAnon. No, I got, I've got, I got, yeah, he has a movie I got too. Movies. Oh, okay. I got movies. No, I was, yeah. cause I was cool yeah. with that. That's a movie into itself. <laughs> um, you know what? Any, anytime I watch, we are your friends, the Zac Efron movie, I got to watch a Sai Ming Lang movie after it. Oh man. <laughs> and, uh, that's exactly what I did. I rewatched, we are your friends and rebels of the neon God. Um, Rewatching Rebels of the Neon God, I was like, I had this idea. I'm like, oh, this is his rebel without a cause. And I was like, was I the first person to think about this? Nope. <laughs> nope. And when it came out, plenty of people said that. <laughs> Literally, there's like a, you know, a big photo of James Dean in the movie for like three minutes. So I think, I think people could figure it out. Um, <laughs> was that like Matt, uh, Pete Campbell in Mad Men? She's like, you know, I... I thought about that independently. I came to it independently. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it was a thing already. We lost Sean. Okay. That fucking cat he was talking about. <laughs> Did some bullshit. The phone line. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging what system. What the fuck? Nine. Are you there? Yeah. Okay, cool. We cut out there. Uh, when, when did you cut out? Was Malcolm talking about James Dean? Yeah. Cool. All right. We're good then. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I'll just pick it back up. We are your friends, rebels of the neon god, youth with nowhere to go. You know, what's, you know, what is Zach Efron going to do besides listen to the voicemails of a girl who was really high at a festival that said, you know, he loved them. That's all he has left. What are you, you going to do if you're, you know, you're disenfranchised, you hear someone having sex through the walls, you're going to joylessly masturbate to it because that's your entertainment for the night. That's what <laughs> rebels of the neon god is all about. And um, I don't know, two great movies by two great artists, Sai Ming Lang. Um, we Are Your Friends is kind of like a, I know we've, I've talked about it on the podcast like five times already, but yeah. like, I feel like I've truly figured out this movie. <laughs> <laughs> do we need to do another on episode on it? Yeah, we might need to, to reinvestigate it, but it's, it's almost just like a perfectly produced movie. And it's like, uh, I don't know, there's not a lot of EDM movies out there. So since it uses that as the subject matter, it kind of just takes a W in that sense. Yeah. But uh, yeah, long ever, live EDM. <laughs> long live EDM. Long live Zac Efron's acting career. Um, but you know, 2015, 2016, the Dirty Grandpa, We Are Your Friends. Yeah. Major combo. Whenever I think of We Are Your Friends, I I, I think of the uh, Wesley Morris wrote a review of it, and he says he says it's like a, a 1980s Paul Schrader movie. If it was intercepted by a studio marketing exec, he says. You should turn Saturday Night Fever into a commercial for Sunny D. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a perfect description, and yeah. I think that's why yeah. it's so amazing. <laughs> JT, what what did you watch this week? Well, I I like to take inspiration from my good friend Malcolm. I mean, I like to take inspiration from you too, Eddie. Just sometimes, I don't know. I'll be on Malcolm's wavelength a little bit more. Um, and I watched a flick. Uh, by Dirty Don Siegel. I had nice. to, uh, I like, I was struggling f to find something to watch uh, the other day. And again, I found myself thinking of 
our good buddy Malcolm. <laughs> what would he, he do? <laughs> <laughs> you you had tweeted recently that um, something about uh, American contribution to movies being the Western. And uh, the Don Siegel and the Western combined for me. And I watched uh, The Shootist, 1976, old Johnny Wayne's last picture. And uh, I was surprised by like how much of a last movie it felt like for John Wayne. I mean, like he must have known the motherfucker was going to die. Um, because like shortly after the film came out, he like publicly announced that he had cancer. But like, uh, the picture is about uh, John Wayne is like an aging, like famous cowboy who meets up with his old buddy uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, who's a doctor, who tells him, "Well, you have fucking cancer. You're gonna die." And he's just like, "Well, find a good place to die." And uh, it really is fascinating in the sense where it's like interrogating like the cowboy mythos and the way it has evolved through John Wayne itself. It's not quite like a masterpiece, but it's really great um, in that respect. And just like, I don't know, like John Wayne's performance is like a man who's like fucking old and brittle and is going to die, but also still a badass, like works really well. Ron Howard is usually annoying as shit, but he is a young boy that, um, John Wayne meets and they like really connect and like it's nice um the the main uh female lead is Lauren Bacall so it's nice to see Bacall uh Jimmy and uh John all in the picture together again towards the very end and uh the final uh shootout like is spectacular and it's just nice to see like I mean I haven't seen many like late career John Wayne flicks but it's nice to see like a little bit more blood and a little bit more violence and you get that little Don Siegel kiss in there mm. yeah um, what I find interesting about that is that like Don Siegel Don Siegel Don Siegel was you know he's making movies you know since the mid 40s and then now towards the end of his career he finally gets a gets a chance to work with the people who could like John Wayne yeah. Jimmy Stewart Lauren Bacall after, you know, kind of creating, you know, on that, that new wave Western with the uh, Eastwood, not creating, but being a part of it. Yeah, so it's of just, it's just kind of interesting that this is, he finally gets his hands on those actors at this point towards Got the end of their career. Could. Yeah. I <laughs> it, like that. It's nice. I mean, you definitely see him paying respect more to the classic Western in this than sort of a new wave thing. But like the way the two mesh together is really good. Yeah. Cause I feel like the way, like, like you think of like revisionist Westerns, right. And like. I feel like Don Singles, uh, he's never he never really wants to like, um, and this is a good quality of a revisionist Western sometime, but kind of like uh, point out like the moral decay of like, you know, people in the West or like, uh, you know, immoral behavior. He never wants to point it out in a way where it's just complete moralizing. He likes to have fun with it. A lot of it's like part of the humor he has. So like, I, yeah, that's kind of that, that's interesting that he gets to pay pay homage to the old West. Uh, Sean, did you watch anything recently that you that you want to tell the the folks listening at home all about? Uh, just generally, I, I over the last couple of weeks, I've been watching a bunch of like seventies Italian uh, like genre stuff, like primarily uh, Sergio Martino, but like folding in some Lenzi and Fulci, and it's just uh, it's it's cool. And, like not all of it is good, of course, but it's that's kind of the fun of it is like 
these people just churned out so much stuff with like these you know, Italian like craftsmen that were like you know just just good craftsmen and these composers that were like the best ever and then they're just making these like slasher movies or like movies where people like wrestle a shark underwater like just dumb shit uh but it looks cool um but yeah so uh i think i'm gonna probably continue down that path through the yeah uh the the shark one uh of course fulci's zombie that that's like one of the the first kind of i guess if you could call it Euro sleaze, even though it takes place off the coast of New York. Uh, one of those kind of movies that I saw, and I'm glad I started with such a banger because, uh, you know, nothing's quite replicated that, that action scene of a shark fight. <laughs> I watched a film by Orson Welles based on <laughs> the big O. Yeah. The big O adapting a text by Booth Tarkington. It is of course the magnificent Ambersons from 1942. And, to take a bit of dialogue from the film, you know, uh, it, it really left me in a state of great bustitude. Uh, <laughs> the compression of a grand sweeping narrative into B-movie length is, you know, perfect for Wells's exacting and expressive compositions. And it's so dedicated to showing the passing of time as like a march toward death and comeuppance for one person and a progression towards a modern society for everybody else. In terms of both reining in uh, his like more bombastic side and exploring more emotional nuance, I think it's clearly a step forward from Citizen Kane and you know one of his best films. And uh, I think it really would pair well with Othello, which I've talked about on this segment before. You know, both of these, I guess, quote unquote, should be closer to three hours, but come in uh, a, a hair under 90 and you know one of them was butchered by the suits and the other was basically a, exactly what wells could do with uh what he had at his disposal uh you know coming at not opposite ends of his career but you know very different points in his career so as my middle segment uh love affair with orson wells continues <laughs> i will as always recommend the magnificent ambersons I've never seen it. That's like I have. There's like three wells I haven't seen, and that's like the big one that I have left. Yeah, the newer uh, Criterion Blu-ray, whatever scan they use for that, looks fucking incredible. Because the first time I watched it was on TCM, and honestly, it didn't look that great on cable. Uh, with Ben Mankiewicz talking about <laughs> incest porn or whatever on the bumper, <laughs> that dude is a freak. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'll put the clip in. We've talked about it before, uh, yeah, yeah. but I'll put the clip One in. One of the best clips of all time. Did we talk about it on pod or have we just talked about it? I think we've talked about it on pod. Really? Yeah. I, I love it so much. New listeners, we'll catch you up. And we'll be back to talk about real life. I'm sorry we couldn't get to it in this segment. The best way to experience this movie would be if you have to watch it. Turn it on TV at home when it comes down to DVD and turn the sound completely off. <laughs> and then as you're cleaning the house or you've got a party going on, you that's, need the kids um, to stay occupied. That'll make this a lot more That's how I had to watch uh, incest porn. What? You got to turn the sound down. Then it's just porn. I'm so confused. Okay. <laughs> or if you're on an airplane and you need to occupy your kid, let them watch it on an iPad or whatever, or on the little screen in front of you, and then they can watch it. You don't have to listen to it at all. I, I love to, that we're oh, talking about the kids' movie, and you bring up right. incest porn. I'm, I'm so just confused. saying everybody, every guy gets that moment when a friend hands them the box of old porn, right? And one of the tapes was incest porn. Or it's like Did that a, ever happen to you? No, okay. no. Ben has just to be clear, than you do. Just to be clear, these were all grown-ups. It was like the 22-year-old daughter, right? It was a, but then you're like, oh, Jesus, it's her dad. And then I'm like, well, I'll just mute it.
and we're back on extended clip uh here to talk about real life the uh yeah, enough about movies let's talk about real life oh man you know uh <laughs> slavo zizek would have a field day with this one <laughs> and he's the gentleman behind the whole thing you know quite a gentleman he is why well, he's made me laugh on The Tonight Show, The Late Ed Sullivan. And I know you've seen his short films on NBC's Good Night Saturday. And a lot of you have seen him on your favorite shows, I'm sure. And if you like the food we had today, you have him to thank for that. So would you please welcome, with a big Phoenix applause, all the way from Hollywood, California, Mr. Albert Brooks. Uh, So Real Life by Albert Brooks, 1979, his debut feature film, uh, stars Albert Brooks as himself, a filmmaker, uh, as he decides to document the life of an American family for television. And, uh, you know, after proving the worthlessness of cinema verite and a truthful documentary, he, you know, self-inserts a little bit for maximum comedic hijinks. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a story about the inherently irresponsible and amoral practice of filmmaking uh and uh whether you know you're you're capturing a reality for what it is or blowing it up hollywood style uh you are destroying the souls of human beings <laughs> including your own yeah. including oh, your own sure. yeah because you're, you're brooks uh you know he gets it worse than anyone else i mean mentally in this movie you know <laughs> according to himself yeah um yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, everyone involved just gets maimed, hurt. I mean, you know, people. Uh, I like at the end that you know that the the, the doctor who's naysaying the, him the whole time tries to sell a book that doesn't even sell well. You know, it's just a <laughs> completely uh, exploitative venture. Yeah, uh, JT, you'd seen this one before. Yeah, no, it was nice to revisit it. Take this time around. It was I don't know. Um, I watched it when I was real young and I feel like all of the harshness and cynical like media critique didn't really like ring true. But now I'm just just bathing in the bitterness of this movie. <laughs> uh, Sean, uh, how, how did you feel about this one? I, uh, I it's, it's great, of course. But um, I, I think the biggest thing that I think about with regard to it is just introducing Bro- Albert Brooks's character as this guy who's just like full of all this artistic ambition and it's it's so fun to watch like that just gets stripped down uh yeah it's it's uh it, but it's it's not obvious um the way it's done but um it uh yeah it's it's good <laughs> i feel like in general like mockumentary as a genre is like something i really despise yeah and it's like a very sloppy <laughs> way to like have like I don't know. I feel like, but like the mode itself is like kind of like a half-hearted joke. But uh-huh. it, I think this gets the fullest potential possible that you could do with like parodying like real life. So I mean, what you don't like my favorite shows, The Office and the Modern Office. Family. <laughs> Apparently, uh, like uh, there's whereas uh, Hoberman, Hoberman wrote like a little thing in, in the in the voice for this, and he quotes Brooks himself like uh, being pissed that like 85 percent of the reviews took the film literally thinking that <laughs> thinking that that the studio let albert brooks do this experiment <laughs> god uh the times haven't changed people don't know how to watch movies yeah 
I mean, it's, you know, I think what works, you know, with this mockumentary format is also just a powerhouse performance by Brooks. Brooks oh, my goodness. As probably his funniest, at least the way I, uh, I've seen him in all the different scenarios he puts himself into. Just like the way his character is introduced, just fucking tap dancing for those you know old yeah. fucks in arizona like about <laughs> how he's gonna sell the show and he's like rhyming in his like weird sinatra like songs and just it, it's so pathetic and uh yeah it's a great you know meta critique of of himself too which is you know the film opens on uh you know before flashing back to the the selection process the film opens on brooks getting ready to start filming this town in arizona and he's you know hyping up the project and he tells these people that you know we're making a movie about reality you know and then he gets into a little song and dance and it's so funny because i guess it's just this weird dissonance because he has such a like postmodern metatextual sensibility but he also has like an old-timey showman vibe yeah. too <laughs> and it's kind of like what a lot of a lot of the simpsons is you know a lot of the humor there is like you know old-timey kind of humor but juxtaposed with with like a more postmodern sensibility. Uh, and I think that that like the the old timey showbiz kind of song that he does up top is a perfect encapsulation of why Albert Brooks's character uh, just doesn't fit into the world at all and why he just destructs everything in his path and why that's so funny. Yeah. And like he's doing it for the sake of art. Like he feels like he's bringing yeah. something towards society. I mean, I, I that is this might be one of my favorite comedies just because of how much it makes me laugh. I mean, him rhyming in the song he's like i don't got the time or the chord <laughs> yeah. oh lord just him saying that. <laughs> stupid just how stupid he appears yeah. and him not realizing that him thinking he's the smartest person in the room exactly is what's, it, what's yeah. hilarious throughout you know the reality segments with the family plus like the behind the scenes you know producing them trying to make the film in the background element so fun god bless you i'd like to thank you all but we don't have the time or the chord Got to move, got to get this film on its way. See you soon, hope you like it. And I think that's a great, like, kind of protracted and long cold open, which is also a great way to set you into, like, what the comedic tone is going to be, because this doesn't really fall into any traps of what film comedy usually is and it doesn't have like the sitcom-y feel either it's just a very strangely uncomfortable film that opens with a you know long uncomfortable scene before uh tight uh, you know opening credits over like you know muzak basically uh in the credits also it's uh you know comedy comedy fans will notice produced by penelope spheris as well uh and mm -hmm. like it's kind of a a stacked uh you know, creative team in here with her and Harry Shearer as well. Uh, and of course you get James L. Brooks making an appearance as a uh, driving instructor in a great scene. But, you know, it, it's so great when you introduce the family and you have Charles Grodin as this awful man at the head of this family, <laughs> just a nervous wreck who is clearly a fan of just television and Albert Brooks and is just staring into camera for the first 15 minutes that he's on screen incessantly uh it's it's one of his great performances and it's very like clifford where it's like he after a while is just putting up with an insane comedic force you know yeah i when i think about groden i think about clifford and beethoven and heartbreak kid and in all those he has like an edge to him 
And what I find so interesting about this one is like he doesn't have an edge. He is, he is just like a cuck. Like he is just like <laughs> so beta. And uh, just watching him at that first dinner table, like he's so excited for the a movie to start, and that he wants to manufacture. Like uh, him and him and Brooks are kind of similar in that way, but just like very different ends of the sort of like media savvy. Uh, spectrum but he just like wants to manufacture this family and his, his like him and his wife bouncing off each other is so funny and right away uh the francis lee mccain character uh the the matriarch of the household is just losing it having an absolutely miserable time uh, apparently groden uh i don't know if force but strongly suggested her to get a uh, a birth control a, an iud that is you know you know seemingly destroying her body from the inside <laughs> is, you know miserably suffering this entire like first half of the movie uh and groden is just trying to put on for the audience that he feels like is watching live it kind of seems like yeah yeah no i mean it's it's really funny because groden's trying to you know create this false reality for the tv show while like destroying his own and at the same time while trying to create that other reality he's also using that to avoid real life problems like even even when um he feels worried about a failed surgery that is captured on camera and he's like uh He's he's negative about the show now because he's worried he's going to be depicted in a bad light. Where how does he express this to his wife? You know, at uh, her dad's funeral or or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Her uh, one of her grandparents. One of her grandparents' funeral. So it's 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 funny how immersed he is and how much he doesn't even realize it. This Charles Grodin character. That horse surgery scene is so funny. <laughs> like just a botched surgery, and then of course you get the deadpan voiceover by Albert Brooks just saying that like the surgery finished earlier than expected. <laughs> and the 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 other doctor going like yeah two two point five plus two point five is five. <laughs> so much of the humor in this i mean one of the characters uh when they're trying to because there are these scenes where over the phone you get a studio executive and you also have these representatives from the uh psychological institute uh who are kind of the opposing forces trying to keep albert brooks in check in this filmmaking venture and uh in his defense he's trying to say that you know there isn't any action yet but the tension is the action and i think that's a good way to summarize like the what the comedy is here you know because there aren't really any big set pieces necessarily until the end most of it is just these scenes that keep getting longer and more tense as they go (laughs) and uh you know groden just deteriorating and this whole family just trying to shy away from brooks and eventually you know the filmmaking process makes it into the news and then this documentary reality just becomes the reality of the tv news you know and then the only reality left is of course the one where albert brooks is going insane and no one trusts him (laughs) i like i mean in what you're getting at there with like the structure of the overall film i think that's why it works so much as a comedy because i feel like it's the perfect hybrid of like a gag movie and also something more narratively driven because you do get that sort of like i don't know the the classic sort of opportunity to do a family guy-esque cutaway in the beginning (laughs) where it's like you see all the testing of the different families but then there is the narrative engine of them like putting on like making the movie is driving the movie and it like gives a really weird flow to the picture but it's so fucking funny and it, it like produces like weird feelings for everyone involved i think it's really funny 
how the the wife character you know shows attraction towards Albert Brooks at first, <laughs> and then towards you know maybe twenty minutes later, you know Brooks kind of once the movie's kind of failing, he like you know maybe I could hit her back up and try to maybe this could be a part yeah. of it. And um, she realizes you know what I think you were right. I was just kind of caught up in the moment and like the filmmaking kind of you know manipulated me into like this moment. And he's like, ah oh, yeah, all right, you know that's <laughs> that's good because the way his because he kind of. The first half of this movie, he, like, he has, like, this dork, like, ego, kind of, like, dumb guy, mm-hmm. smart guy ego where he's, like, he's almost he's almost kind of a legend because he's, he's just, like, ignoring everything and still being cool. I mean, when he's consoling the wife and he's just, like, oh, no, I'm, I didn't do anything nice for you. I'm a, I'm a shallow guy. It is, <laughs> it is very Chad status there. This is a uh, – Albert Brooks is going alpha. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. And, and to think about, like, the way that uh, he – makes comedy work and the, and the structure within this um to bring up dave kerr uh again he he has an essay on on lost in america that has to be like the best critical piece of of work on albert brooks but um uh he compares him to woody allen the way that you know he calls him like buster like he is Buster to to Chaplin, you know. Called him uh, a Buster. <laughs> yeah, Brooks Brooks to to Allen is Buster Chaplin, and like how those bigger artists, they they need the audience and approval and the attention, so that these like smaller artists can quote unquote smaller can like be like working in the shadows on like darker stuff, and, in in more creative ways, and it got me thinking about like. Uh, um, what those differences are uh, more specifically and how um, Brooks isn't really like a comedian. Like he, he, there are like gags and stuff, but not like a Woody Allen movie. And like, he's dark, but, but like Woody has like this, you know, everything's shit and look how dark the world is, but like, let's have a few laughs and like, I'm going to riff on like the Bergman darkness, you know, and put like puns on, on like plot puns within, but like, um, and and I think Woody also like fashions himself like this sort of every man with an intellectual spin. But Brooks is just like ordinary and just like he pulls you in to that ordinariness and then like just reveals like how dark that is. And, and it, it makes you reflect on on yourself. And like, uh, I don't know, it, the, the best like standalone lines aren't like one liners. They're mm-hmm. just like these searing realizations and um uh, Malcolm, you talked about like pathetic. Like I think this is this is the movie where he's the most pathetic because he doesn't realize it yet. I think in the next two movies he, and definitely by like something like Mother, like he he's just like wallowing in self pity, and um, I think those work in those movies. But this, I think, what is sort of like kind of crushing, especially for like boomers at this time, probably who were self aware enough, is just to like see how articulate he was about that like um that ambition and how pathetic you can be mm-hmm. i guess i don't know like not realizing that like the next step of your life are just going to be like drumming pragmatism into your life and like just you know stripping away any sort of like want to do any sort of good in the world is just um yeah it, it, just the way that he reveals that patheticness you know talking in the meeting about um how much uh, comment about his weight on camera like that stuff is you can't like you can't quote that at like parties you know yeah. but it, it's 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 good and it's dark and and funny no it's like the things that woody allen characters talk about 
uh, are things that are felt in the films of Albert Brooks. I think that's the difference. You know, and mm-hmm. look, I don't want to put down, you know, friend of the pod, Woody Allen, sure. too much. <laughs> yeah, we we have a new rule. We don't shit on any middle brow directors anymore because it's, it's a little too past. <laughs> Only <eye>. this month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I do like. Uh, uh, I shouldn't have said friend of the pod, but, you know, whatever. I mean, we the... say what we say. <laughs> Associate of the pod. <laughs> If if they if the listeners actually think we have real life connections to Woody Allen, let them think that. This is the broadcast news episode where I pretend not to edit, but then when you realize what I do edit, it's very interesting. It's very telling. <laughs> I think that's every episode. You're gonna get an email from Woody next next. <laughs> Another one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but the way like Albert Brooks thinks he's so cool in the beginning, and how that inverts on himself, and he kind of realizes towards the end, or struggles to realize it, and expresses it in a literal burning house is very different from kind of like the ending of like modern romance where it's kind of very uh not unfinished but like undecided kind of like a you know will they or won't won't they type Mm. relationship whereas this ending feels so uh scathing and definite and i love that like it can boil down uh all of these existential things that it's bringing up into him asking himself in the bathroom mirror, why did I pick reality? You know, like of all the subjects to make a movie about, he went with reality. And uh, I love that that is the last beat he hits before uh, burning the house down. Spoiler alert. Uh, but I love that that scene also is the most that you get out of the, the game kind of throughout with these cameramen wearing these camera helmets. <laughs> One of my favorite little just like tools in any comedy movie really is because they become, you know, the diegetic camera and it kind of goes back and forth, you know, uh, whether or not you're in the perspective of one of these guys with the camera helmets. Uh, so funny when one of them talks to him. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That bathroom scene where they fully <laughs> interact. It's so perfect for that to be like Brooks's emotional and psychotic climax, I guess. Uh, and it's just the guy behind the camera is like, yeah, it's not that bad. Like, you know, <laughs> I love this film. I I merely liked it, you know, four years ago when I first watched it. But it, it's clearly a classic. Uh, maybe my favorite Albert Brooks movie uh i will see when when i revisit modern romance next week and eventually uh looking for uh comedy in the muslim world <laughs> i almost said looking for love <laughs> looking for love in the muslim world uh That'd be cool but anyway I, I, i'm giving this one four and a half bullets. i'm gonna go five bullets this has been an all-time classic for me for a while and it's truly one of the most rewatchable comedy movies to me i'm, I'm getting howl laughs every time and it's like even all the stuff we mentioned even the stuff that's just kind of like throwaway is just gold i mean like uh one scene where like the the wife has left and uh, groden is just alone with his children and like uh his daughter's like playing dress up and dress up and acting like a classic hollywood uh you know madam and she's like, kiss me dad kiss me and he's like no get off me get off me it's just like it's just so strange and like that yeah. and mother both like albert yeah. brooks is really fucking with the, the incest <laughs> jokes yeah. uh, but it's very funny each time yeah ahead of his time he, he knew it would be popular one day exactly well it's just like that rebel without a cause scene where yeah. it, it's the kiss from daddy dispute the same way you know but it's 20 years later you know how the family values have changed <laughs>
Take me in your arms and kiss me. All right, honey, me. take off the dress. This is your confirmation oh, dress, honey. Oh, we've really. been apart. Honey, really, listen to what you're saying, take me really. and honey. kiss me like you never come kissed on. me before. Honey, come on, really, you're going to get hit. Now, honey, come on, really, get out of this dress. I can stay in this dress. Mother said I could. Right, I bet she did. Honey, go ahead. <laughs> Remember when you used to be able to kiss your daughter on the lips and no one would think anything of it? Anyway, JT, what do you think about this one? <laughs> um, I'm also going shooting it down five fucking bullets. Like, I don't know. It's crazy that this movie predates, like, most reality television as well. It's, like, wild that something works as such an absurd comedy where they're, like... I, I wrote down this dumb line that, like, looking at it throughout, talking about it has made me laugh, is those lays keep... Put them in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like dumb shit like that. Charles Grodin doing horse surgery. And then like on top of being like frantic and crazy all over the place, it like is a like hard hitting like satire about like how like exploitative like filmmaking like this type of like documentary project is like it's brilliant but like has no like is not concerned about its own brilliance and uh, yeah. I, I love it what about you sean yeah I, i'm i'm doing four and a half uh bullets uh I, I feel like even just talking with you guys like i'm realizing how much uh more i love it than i even realize like just just thinking about Grodin's performance is so like quietly brilliant but um i, I think for all three of these I, i'm probably gonna save the the five bullet status just to give myself something to do later in life <laughs> uh, but yeah i just love like uh this one enriches the next two so much um for me like just thinking about the end of lost in america um and the beginning of real life is just like such a great trajectory yeah i guess well, not to just name scenes but I, I do have to shout this scene out in real life i think i already mentioned it but when he's consoling the wife from that supermarket and he just keeps on like putting his sunglasses on and taking them <laughs> off it's one of the fun that's one of the funniest gestures of all time he also goes full hover hands mode on yeah. her when oh, she cries so and good. he consoles her one of the most beautiful <laughs> acts <laughs> yeah i mean brooks it's brooks kills it in this movie yeah. top to bottom one of the funniest feel. performances yeah we have no pulse doing that doing that makes fun the operation was over at 11.45, well ahead of schedule. Oh, no. Dr. Yeager took a short break and then asked if he could see me alone in his office. This past week on the the Patreon, the After Hours feed on patreon.com slash extended clip, you can find an episode where we hopped back in the hot tub time machine. Went back to 1973, talked a little more Orson Welles there, uh, alongside some Robert Altman, uh, Joe D'Amato, Jess Franco, all your favorites are back, you know? <laughs> and uh, on the next bonus episode, Sean will be joining us to talk about Ho Shaoshen's three times. So uh, that's that. And you can always reach us on uh, Twitter at ExtendedClip69. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Bitch Face Palace. I'm at Tall Boy Thin Legs. And uh, Sean, you're at Mr. Glynis. Is that correct? Yep. Damn. Nailed it. Didn't even ask. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the number one place where you can reach us, our, our favorite method of communication has long been the electronic mail, which you can hit us up at, at uh, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. If you, like, don't DM us a question, email it. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Unless you're trying to book us on your podcast. True. You could, yeah, you could do whatever you want. I'm just spitballing here. We're just, yeah, this is pure riff. You're, we're in riff central right now. <laughs> the, the subject r- line <laughs> is email. This one comes from uh, uh, email superstar Valerie. Uh, Hey, fellas, how's it going? My email for the week is to ask about a fellow Brooks brother who is also not related to Albert Brooks nor James L. Brooks, Mel Brooks. What do you think of his work? I'm about to ask a question nobody has ever asked online before. Could Blazing Saddles be made today? (laughs) Can't wait to hear your responses to my very original question. Sincerely, Valerie. You know... Who says no? Yeah, who says no? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I've only seen Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and I remember really liking them. And I kind of just like don't want to go any further in case I don't like the other ones or even don't like those on rewatch. Yeah, I mean, I those were definitely movies I enjoyed as a child. Although I saw Blazing Saddles in like 2016 through like uh, at the AMC 16 in uh, Woodland Hills uh, with Movie Pass, and I remember it being kind of lukewarm on it. I remember it being kind of funny. Damn, I almost went to that screening. Yeah, damn. Lost a valley classic um will anyone ever go to the amc in woodland hills again <laughs> time, only time will tell i'm gonna like you know remember those people who like worked out outside of the gym while covid was happening i'm gonna watch a movie on my psp outside of the amc 16 <laughs> in woodland hills. Yeah. let's set it up um but i i remember young frankenstein fondly i remember uh, stealing the bit where like uh they're telling gene wilder like you haven't touched your food yet are you hungry and then he just there 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 i touched it you know it just matches his own potatoes uh yeah that's all i got to say about mel brooks um i had a little bit of a mel brooks phase when i was a young buck i when i was more of a comedy guy before a movie guy i like did a little run on mel brooks and i'm also like i I liked all of them then except for like maybe silent movie but um i'm like, I don't know. I'm worried to go back. I don't want to revisit it and don't want to dislike them. I Isn't... just remembered Spaceballs. Oh, yeah, oh, no, no. Come on, man. Yeah, I, like, yeah. My roommates threw on Spaceballs like the, the other Spaceballs. day, and I was like doing my hardest to avoid it. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to like. You do kind of have to give it up for the grossness of Pizza the Hut. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah it's it's rough I mean like I get I like I like the guy Mel Brooks uh, good on you <laughs> come on the pod like, uh, he yeah if you come on the pod maybe I'd like a little yeah. bit more of your movies we'll squash the beef yeah. we'll grieve over your uh, dear departed friend Carl Reiner <laughs> yeah let's do that let's break bread <laughs> uh, Sean what about you uh, I don't have any uh, revelatory thoughts about Mel Brooks but uh, he was also like sort of a peripheral childhood uh, staple because my dad loved them but um i i remember i remember liking high anxiety like and i remember watching it and thinking that it was underrated but um i mean i think Spaceballs obviously uh uh everybody loved that as a kid but i think the big difference is that like he does parody movies a lot of the times and there's there's always a shelf life for parody movies as far as like introducing them to new people so i i wonder how much people are going to care about mel brooks movies in the next you know 30 years or whatever. yeah it's no scary movie i feel like that's why blazing saddles i feel like stands out to some extent or why that would be the one i'm most willing to revisit because i feel like it kind of like it 
it, it like obviously is a parody, but then it like breaks down that like it becomes very frantic there in the last half where it's mm-hmm. sort of uh, I don't know they go from set to set and it becomes yeah. like that sort of meta thing. I do like them breaking out of the studio lot at the end, but then it's just like compare that to what we just talked about at the end of real life, and it's like come on, we know the superior Brooks brother of the seventies. <laughs> is there another Brooks? Richard Brooks? I feel like that's someone. Our next email comes to us from Jake. Uh, the subject line is double features. It says, hey, extended clip. This is Buddy Love from the Discord. And this is a side note. This is just me speaking. If you want to get on the Discord, it's pretty fun in there. And uh, if you join on Patreon, you get a link. And, uh, you know, it's not patron exclusive, but that's one way to find the <laughs> Richard Brooks was in Law and Order in the crowd. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Back to the email. <laughs> Recently, I found a Blu-ray double feature of Face Off and Snake Eyes, and I thought to myself, this must be the best double feature disc ever manufactured. It's so rare, you find one with two stone-cold classics. Uh, what's the best double feature disc you guys have ever encountered? Now, this is a very interesting question to me. I love the multi-DVD pack. They're kind of like a thing of the past. They're kind of an early Blu-ray, mid-period DVD relic. But uh, I'm a big fan of these things. So thank you for emailing us about this, Jake. Yeah. See, I, I, uh, I've been moving recently, so like I, uh, I, you know, I organized all my DVDs, all in uh, twelve of them, and I was like, uh, it's like, damn, I don't have a double feature one. But I, I remember this one day at Target where I. Uh, Cause like I don't know, I'm cheap. I'm cheap. I don't buy DVDs. Um, Are you going into a Rodney yeah. Dangerfield bit? Digital media gets no respect. But uh, um, I got uh, a, a Jerry Lewis pack of like Bellboy, oh, yeah. Errand Boy, Ladies Man, and Patsy for five bucks, and a James Dean pack for five bucks. East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause giant and i don't know what the other movie is yeah. on there but um i you know all dvds not blu-rays you know no you know nothing to take home but uh <laughs> i you know ten dollars eight movies that's a good deal that's i'll buy some dvds if i'm getting deals yeah, like that that's a good deal i i was at target the other day and i saw an adam sandler four pack for eight dollars and i almost bought it Damn. it was all like early to mid 2000s ones it was like uh click 51st dates and two other ones, but I, I prefer the later ones. I saw one three pack that was uh, just go with it. That's my boy and blended. I think, Ooh. Uh, and then I've also seen the grown ups, grown ups two duo quite a bit uh, over the years. Uh, you know, anytime I'm at a store that has DVDs, you know, I'm looking at every single title that the store has. So I've seen a lot of these in the past. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. I um, I mean, for my answer. I like I, I I mean obviously the best pairings I feel like are usually based on like actor or like director. Mm-hmm. I mean that's the obvious like way you get a surefire hit yeah. out of these combo packs. But one the I think the worst and like funniest one I owned was Fargo Rain Man. Oh hell <laughs> yeah. And it's like I think it's just that they're both movies that won Academy Awards, but I like the connection being 
uh, Dustin Hoffman weird accent with the Fargo accents. It's like that's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what that's what they that's how they market it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's accents. <laughs> Look, that's that's that, the evil that's, of DVD that's what ties them together. Yeah, yeah. that's like there's I also nothing... should correct myself. It wasn't blended. That was in that three pack. It was Jack and Jill. I should show ah. some respect to a Dennis Dugan classic. <laughs> Sean, what about you? You seen any good uh, any of these good DVD multi packs? Yeah, I, in the mid uh, DVD days, I used to uh, stock the, the Walmart shelves in my hometown, and um, I remember seeing a lot of the. I, I remember like Tom Cruise being a feature of these. Oh, yeah. um, Cocktail and and Color of Money is just like a super chill double feature that I, I could see. Uh, Warner uh, Brothers had a line called four film favorites and it yeah. would be either like a genre or a period in time or something like that. So I have one right here to show off to the boys IRL. Uh, this is four film favorites girls night collection. Turn up. <laughs> so going uh, uh, clockwise, I guess from the top left corner, I got a Cinderella story. Uh, what a girl wants chasing Liberty and last but not least, ooh, boy, is it not least the sisterhood of the traveling pants. <laughs> hey, you should use that as a as a Patreon giveaway. Get some chicks yeah. and the, the ladies. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's part of the DVD <laughs> raffle. Look, they, uh, the, we got, we only need like I think thirty more dollars a month on Patreon before I give away a bunch of my DVDs. Come on, I mean I'm giving away like three or four, but <laughs> still, uh, sign up and um, extended clip ladies night. Edition. The two I, I did buy two really bad double features that I, I have since parted with, but one of them was uh, House of Sand and Fog and American Beauty. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> I don't know what you're talking and, about. That sounds great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Deacon's Classics, that, which is I think the timeline. I think, or no, no, Conrad Hall. Oh, uh, but yeah. any, anyway, uh, um, and then one was uh, the. The first two films of one uh, D. Aronofsky, Pie and Rec Room for a Dream. Wow. Uh, also, another classic is the most valuable primate and most vertical primate duo pack. <laughs> uh, a couple of classic chimp mode <laughs> athletic films. Um, more Brooks. Foster Brooks. You ever watch the Dean Martin roast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, guys. I don't know if you guys could hear that eye roll, but we'll be right back on extended clip uh, next week uh, to talk about uh, Garth Brooks. <laughs> next week we're talking about uh, modern romance and uh, James L. Brooks's "I'll Do Anything." Brooks and Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know I've come along?